You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. And you can also find podcasts, past podcasts, at the League website, whose address is www.lwv-bmc.org. And once again, more slowly, lwv-bmc.org. Today's guest is Greer Carson, who is Library Director of the Monroe County Public Library. And he is here to discuss the library as a civic institution. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to say, when I visualize our county library, I see a lot, a lot more than books and magazines and newspapers and audiovisuals. What I see is a place where I can find blank tax forms if I need them, a place for public meetings and civic education, an archive of local history, and in the new library, a place to learn sustainable cookery. Now, what's the mission umbrella, if there is one, for all of these diverse roles that the library plays in our community. And what have I left out? I probably left out something. Fair enough. Well, the mission that encapsulates all of this is to offer equitable and impartial access to information, resources, and opportunities to read, learn, connect, and create, all with the aim to strengthen our community and enrich people's lives. I mean, that's a pretty lofty sounding mission, I'll admit, but it's one that every library employee, every trustee, and every volunteer understands and embraces. And that understanding, I think, is the principal reason why we succeed. The list of services our library provides is ever-evolving. And so I'd also add that we provide an eclectic mix of on-site and online programming, ranging from how-to courses to yoga and mindfulness sessions to even dance parties. We provide resources for digital creativity and experimentation with audio and video production studios, maker spaces, which include 3D printers, we have interactive spaces for physical activities. We have non-traditional circulating library collections, such as musical instruments, culinary tools, mobility aids. And we have a robust outreach program that brings many of these resources to residents where they live every week. And of course, we have our CATS department, which provides a unique public educational and governmental meeting coverage service and archive service that very few public libraries have. We're even looking at ways to build entry-level social services into our operations with other public libraries have started to do. So the evolution of these and future services will always be informed by community input because we want to provide what patrons want and need. Well, I did leave a few things out, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but the library goes a lot far further beyond community service. And I'm wondering, what can you tell us about the library's role in a democracy? and its protection under our Constitution's First Amendment. What do you say about those things? Sure. Well, as the First Amendment ensures freedom of the press, which, you know, sort of broadly refers to the technology of the printed and distributed word itself, and books have long been the product of that freedom and the original bread and butter of libraries. But there isn't anything specific about public libraries in the First Amendment, of course, not least because they didn't really exist in the U.S. until the late 19th century. Our contemporary view, thanks in part to the American Library Association and its Library Bill of Rights, is that libraries are an agent of that freedom insofar as they provide access to the printed word, 
and thereby cultivate and facilitate intellectual freedom among the citizenry. The role of a public library in a democracy boils down, I think, to two important pieces. One is ensuring intellectual freedom, which means people have the right to read, watch, play, listen to, or otherwise experience intellectual content of their choosing and to form their own opinions. And public libraries do this by curating and providing access to collections of resources such as books and films and music, and now many more forms of media. The second is providing that access to all people within the community the library serves. And this was not always the case. Again, it's a relatively contemporary development. I think the hot button issue here, though, is censorship, and namely the attempt on the part of one group or another to restrict access to intellectual content and thereby curtail intellectual freedom for some ideological end. This inevitably puts libraries in the center of that controversy, as they very much are today, because ensuring intellectual freedom for all means fighting against censorship. And it's important here, I think, to emphasize that the fight against censorship is nonpartisan. It's not about promoting one view over another or stacking collections with more of one thing over something else, because collections evolve just like services do. It's about selecting what the community wants and ensuring that it's available to everyone who wants it, plain and simple. Okay. Uh, now, were U.S. libraries always so involved in community service? I'm wondering if you can tell us about our history there and what you might see for the future. Uh, I don't believe so, at least not in their inception. Public libraries in the U.S. started as private subscription libraries. Actually, Ben Franklin himself is often credited with opening the first public library, but that was a subscription model, which is inherently exclusive uh, rather than community focus as we think of it today. Um, and there were trade or industry-specific libraries dating back to the late 18th century. Uh, but again, that's exclusive to employers and trade unions and not necessarily community-focused. The first publicly funded libraries in the U.S. emerged in the early 19th century, including our own here in Bloomington, by the way. Our inception date is 1820. But it took another 50 or so years for the idea of nationwide public libraries to really get off the ground. And one of the biggest shifts toward libraries becoming community focused came with our Andrew Carnegie and his incredible philanthropic commitment to build over 2000 public libraries in the US and his stipulation that they be funded by taxpayers. And by the way, Indiana has uh, over 160 Carnegie libraries, which is more than any other state. Uh, this shift helped bring public libraries into more of the mainstream of civic consciousness, and that in turn helped public libraries see their mission in a different light. And then starting around the 1970s or so, public libraries began thinking of themselves more as community centers rather than houses of books. And this really transformed our service model in myriad ways, as your first question illustrates. Uh, I believe this will continue well into the future, not only because it's been a very successful transformation, but also because the needs of citizens are increasingly diverse and public libraries are one of the few shared community institutions that provide that third space type of experience for citizens today. Indeed, my daughter lives in England and their libraries are mainly prescription and they're very different from what we have here. Yeah, very different, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder, what can you tell us about the role of our libraries in the United U.S. cultural wars, past and present. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how involved public libraries have been in terms of the history of U.S. culture wars, other than the fact that libraries are always the center of attention when it comes to book banning. 
as our current censorship crisis demonstrates. But over the past decade or so, libraries have kind of doubled down on trying to better represent the diversity of the human experience by taking a close look at how well we really reflect marginalized or otherwise underrepresented groups of people. And we do this in at least three ways, uh, collection development, public programming, and ensuring that resources and facilities are accessible and inclusive. In terms of our present culture war, any library program aimed at promoting awareness of the identities and experiences or even beliefs of a particular group is likely to generate blowback. And we've seen this with programs like Drag Queen Storytime or even Rainbow Reads. I think some people confuse these awareness or representation goals on the part of libraries with endorsement or even indoctrination. And that puts yeah. libraries right in the middle of the culture wars, despite our being politically neutral and not at all wanting to be a part of those issues. Indeed. Uh, a lot of our listeners will be wondering exactly how does our library determine which books and other items can be in our collection? Oh, certainly. Well, it starts with our collection development policy, which is possibly the most important and it's, it's certainly the most foundational policy that a library can have. In this policy, we outline our philosophy for building diverse collections and our process for selecting and evaluating individual titles. And of course, this policy, like all of our policies, are made available on our website and are continually reviewed and updated as time goes on. Um, like most public libraries, we strike a balance between selection expertise and community input. For example, we know what's popular across the publishing industry and what's popular at other public libraries, what's well-reviewed and recommended by literary and library trade publications, uh, what's likely to circulate well once we add it to our collections, and we know how all of that fits within our selection budget. So that's the expertise piece. But we also seek and respond to community input often down to requests for specific titles, which we very often satisfy as part of our selection duties. And that means there's kind of an ongoing public selection component to collection development. I like to think of it as our patrons serving in the role of perpetual advisors as to what we select. So there's a balance between the two. Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends who do exactly that. They're always phoning in and say, would you get this or that? Or yeah. Some, what else? Yeah. yeah, that happens a lot. Um, Another related question, I think, how exactly does the Monroe County Public Library handle complaints about such items and how frequent are such complaints? Yeah, good question. So we have a formal process, like a lot of libraries do, uh, for patrons to request a reconsideration of a specific item. Uh, it usually begins with a conversation about that patron's concern between them and a staff member, and that's sometimes myself which centers around our collection development policy and the notion of intellectual freedom. And if after that discussion, the patrons still feel strongly that the item should either be recataloged and placed in a different collection or simply removed from the library altogether, then they're asked to complete a form and submit it for our review. And that form is available on our website as part of the collection development policy. Um, and we also have these forms available at our physical locations. And so then we form a committee, and this consists of managers, librarians from different audience areas, not just the audience area of the title in question, and at least one community member. And they all independently read, watch, play, whatever, the title in question, and then they conduct independent research on how well the title was reviewed, how many other libraries have the title, 
And then they discuss as a group the concerns that were raised by the patron and issued through the formal reconsideration request form. The group then submits a recommendation after their work in writing to the library director to either recatalog, remove, or leave the item in place, including their research and their justification as it relates to the collection development policy and the principles of intellectual freedom. Uh, the library director then makes the final decision about the title and shares that decision in writing with the patron who submitted the request for reconsideration. Uh, we take this process very seriously, all good libraries do. Um, it's kind of part of that public input and advisory piece that I mentioned before. On average, MCPL gets between one and three requests per year, and that has not changed despite the current climate, although we're always anticipating that it may. Okay, they're quite rare then. Okay. They're relatively rare, yeah. Yeah. Now, a little north of here, up in Fishers, Indiana, we see books being reviewed for, quote, appropriate materials, end quote a review that young author John Green calls, quote, ludicrous, end quote. And I'm wondering, can you tell us how Fishers came to this and what do you think about it? Well, what's happened to our friends up in Hamilton East Public Library is unfortunately not an isolated case. There are other public library boards going through similar challenges and trying to serve the interests of everyone in their community at a time when there's significant ideological disparity among taxpaying library patrons. And I want to acknowledge that the circumstances and politics of any community have a great deal to do with any decision on the part of its library to modify its policies or practices. That said, there is a significant operational problem in having library staff review every title in depth in order to recatalog them and move them to another collection. The sheer volume of materials in a given collection makes this problematic. And in that sense, Green's use of the word ludicrous is appropriate. Um, there is a higher level issue here, and ludicrous is again the right word to describe what's happening with library book challenges. And this criticism is for the impetus behind the decisions like we've seen at Hamilton East and not the library itself, their staff, administrators, or trustees. The call to censor or ban books or to recatalog entire sections of, in this case, young adult uh, items or to even overhaul library collection development policies is ultimately a red herring. This is 2023. The potential for books to confuse or mislead or indoctrinate young minds is dwarfed by the ubiquity and accessibility of the Internet. So if you're genuinely concerned about the appropriateness of content and its impact on our youth, then go after Apple, Google, Microsoft, Meta, Twitter, <laughs> Horizon. I mean, this is where concerns about access to and the impact of intellectual content would be appropriate. And I bet you'd find more commonly shared concerns and goals on both sides of the ideological divide if that were the focus. Going after books is easy. It's a time-worn practice but I think it amounts to window dressing as far as 21st century culture wars are concerned in our country. And it also has very real and negative consequences for the library professionals and educators whose livelihood is on the line. And that's ludicrous and careless. All right, well, thank you very much, Mr. Greer Carson for talking to us about our wonderful Monroe County Library. Good luck to you in the future. And to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has been fighting since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives.